Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to another edition of The Racket Report, the podcast that delves into the world of organized crime from the perspective of the person that's been a victim of organized crime, from the perspective of a person that's been an organized criminal, even a couple of disorganized criminal, from the perspective of journalists, and from the perspective of the advocate. And what an advocate we have today. Maybe it was about uh, 10 or 11 years ago where one of the best quotes about prosecutors and mafia figures that I've ever heard came out of this gentleman's mouth. He said, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Hopefully I remember the quote accurately. He said, for prosecutors, mafia cases are the three Ps, politics, promotion, and publicity. I can't tell you how many times over the course of the past decade I have seen that to be true. Well, it turns out now a key cudgel that prosecutors have been using for 40 years is now being used on figures that 40% of the country just reveres, people like Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani, quite ironic in the case of Mr. Giuliani. What does this mean for the future of the RICO Act? Those are a few of the questions that I have for or a man who has uh, represented and gotten key acquittals for people like Vincent Asaro, Anthony Romanello, Francis B.F. Guerra, and many others. And this is in an era where there are not that many people that even go to trial. To, so to not only go to trial, but get acquittal after acquittal. That's something pretty special. Very, very pleased to welcome legendary criminal defense attorney, Gerald McMahon. Gerald, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Frank. Is that my obituary or is that an intro there? (laughs) I I charge a lot more for obituaries, believe me. Well, no, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. I I mentioned Vincent Asaro. A lot of folks may have read about him recently because he just uh, passed away. You were his attorney in the Lufthansa case. Now, I know a lot of people that may not follow this stuff as closely as I do. They may think, wait a minute, the Lufthansa case, didn't that happen in the late 70s? Wasn't that uh, the Goodfellas case? Why in the world would, uh, you know, Gerald McMahon, he's not that old to have been around in the 70s and do a case like this? Well, um, this was a case that the government chose to prosecute about 30 years after the alleged crime. Can you explain to me the value of prosecuting someone 30 years after this alleged crime occurred? Well, uh, sometimes the feds take the view that you can't, if a crime is so big, we just can't let it go. 
the Lufthansa was one of those crimes that was, you know, captured the imagination of this American public. Too much money, too much involved. And they weren't going to let it go, no matter how many years it took for them to bring on a prosecution. Now, I do want to make one slight correction, Frank. When uh, when Mr. Rosaro got arrested or uh, shortly before he was arrested, I had a meeting with one of my other clients who told me that I'm getting a call from uh, Mr. Rosaro. But this other client told me to Jerry, the guy is a bit of a deadbeat. Make sure you get your money up front. So when I got a call from Mr. Asaro when he got arrested, I represented him at the arraignment. It was a crush of publicity like I've never seen. But then we sat down afterwards to the business of, you know, attorney clients and uh, what are we doing here, pro bono or not. So unfortunately, Mr. Asaro was not in a position or unwilling to uh, give me the money that I thought it would uh, would cost to represent him at a trial. So I ended up not doing a trial. I begged out of it. And a couple of my brother counsel, uh, Diane Ferroni and uh, Elizabeth Macedonio, ended up doing the trial. Ah, well, see, uh, I'm operating on old Braden cells. It was eight years ago, so uh, forgive me. Uh, that is interesting. You know, I, I do wonder, though, do you think that, um, and maybe it's even better that you didn't represent him at that trial because you can be even more objective. Do you think the fact that the jury acquitted him in that case, do you think that's a reflection of um, a lack of evidence, or do you think that's a reflection of the jury trying to send a message to the government, don't bring us this old man uh, uh, in his 70s, decades after this crime occurred, and there's not a lot of value to the taxpayer in in carrying out this prosecution. Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both, but I do think uh, I did spend some time looking at the case in the brief period of time that I was in it, and the case really was not that strong. It really wasn't. They uh, they were they had a lot of holes uh, in their evidence and. Some of their witnesses were really, really poor. So I think it was a combination of the age, but basically mostly it was a lack of evidence to tie him to the uh, to the actual crime. You know, they the government did the same thing with him that they did with uh, John Gotti, John Gotti Jr., the and uh, a lot of other non-mafia figures, people like Bob Menendez, most recently, uh, fo- politicians like Jim Traffican, is he was acquitted and he beat them at trial and then they just go after him again a year right. or two later or a few years later for something else. Is that typical? of the uh, the Department of Justice, do the, is there a certain vindictiveness there that they go after people that beat them at trial? Absolutely. Unquestionably. Uh, my present client, and I'm getting ready for a trial at the end of this month, Mr. Romanello, this is his third go-round with the feds <laughs> in the Eastern District of New York. And they, uh, you know, they, they knew that he was friendly with uh, somebody that was on their radar, Anthony Federici, also known as Tough Tony. So they wanted any, they squeezed anybody and everybody that was close to Federici and they tried to roll them over to become cooperators because they wanted to get Federici. And so they have indicted Mr. Romanello, who is now 86 years old. I'm going to trial the end of this month. He's 86. And uh, so this is now 
unfortunately, Mr. Federici died after he got indicted for the third time. I think had he died before, they might not have brought this indictment. But they they have a they have an institutional vendetta mentality, and if they really want to get somebody, uh, they they will keep going. The Gotti prosecution, John Gotti Jr. Um, you know, was three or four hung juries. You, normally, they, they would never try a case three or four times. They just didn't want to admit defeat. They didn't have a great case from the first time to the last time. But it's hard for them to swallow a pill. It's hard for them to uh, walk away uh, and, you know, losing. The feds win, you know, like 75% of their trials because the evidence is that rules are so slanted in their favor. All of the judges, you know, maybe 99.9% are all former federal prosecutors. And while many of them are fair, it's not like, you know, we're getting cut them loose Bruce or anything in federal court, for sure. So it's, uh, it's easy for them to win. And they have a, you know, they print the money. They don't want to lose. So they keep on coming and they keep on coming. And now I'm doing round three with Mr. Romanello. That, that's incredible. You got to keep me posted on that because especially in this era where there are so few trials and so few mafia trials, uh, right. I would definitely love to come see uh, you cross-examine some of the cooperators in that case. So that's uh, that's going to be interesting to watch. That's in the Eastern District. Yes, it is uh, in front of Judge Comedy. That's it. A new guy, a new judge, and so far he seems pretty good, so we'll see how he is at trial. Yeah, that should be something. Lest anyone think you are a lifelong, dyed-in-the-wool guy that has dedicated his life to getting people out of prison and keeping them from going to prison, you used to be a prosecutor, right? Were you an ADA in Manhattan? Yes, I was. I started uh, at a law school at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Bob Morgenthau. Uh, I had eight trials, eight convictions. I said, wow, I'm ready to go. I didn't much care for Mr. Morgan, so I thought he was a bit of a namby-pamby. So after a couple of years, I hung out my shingle, and I've been a single practitioner defending uh, alleged criminals ever since. So I do have, you know, I come from an Irish background of, of law enforcement and prosecutors in my family. So I, I can think like a prosecutor. I know how they think. And that's certainly beneficial in terms of uh, defending cases at trial. You know, you mentioned your family background. Your father was a prosecutor. I think he was even one of the prosecutors in the uh, Jimmy Hoffa case back in the 50s. Sigmund, Sigmund Freud would have a field day with the fact that here you are dedicating the bulk of your adult life to driving prosecutors crazy. And here your father was one of those same federal prosecutors. Tell me about that. What uh, what relationship your kind of family dynamic might have had in your choice of career? You know, it's funny. Uh, my father was in the late 50s. He was actually chief of the criminal division in the Southern District. And uh, so that's how we got involved in the Hoffa thing. So I grew up uh, watching, the, there was an old TV show called Mr. DA. It was on Channel 5. I can remember a very young age watching Mr. DA on TV and loving it. So I grew up, you know, uh, trials were talked about in the house. And uh, that's what I grew up with. And although I got diverted, you know, I spent seven or eight years in theater uh, after college and before I went to law school. 
I always knew that at some point I was going to go back uh, back to law school and and become a prosecutor. And that's what I did. And I'll tell you, Frank, uh, even when I was in law school, in the very beginning, I was older than most of the kids that were there. You know, they were 25 year olds, 24 year olds, fresh out of college. They hated law school. Mm. I'm there about 30. I was married, had a kid and I loved every bit of it. I loved uh-huh. law school. And uh, so it was what I was born to do, and uh, and I still love doing it now. How did being an actor help you, if it did, as a trial attorney in the courtroom? It 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 had to help. I mean, it's it's just natural. You know, you see some lawyers. I know some lawyers, nice, fine people. They just can't perform in the courtroom. Uh, you know, they get wooden, stiff. You know, no no pleasing personality or anything. Uh, being in a courtroom, standing up there, talking to a jury, talking to a judge is literally as natural as breathing for me. I'm, I am a ham at heart talking to Frank Morano here for a podcast. I love it. I love all the shtick. And, um, certainly the things that I picked up, what's, what's really funny is that I am a much better trial lawyer than I was an actor. <laughs> one, of, one of the things about, about acting is that most of the time, I was never, I was always a little bit uncomfortable. I was never completely uh, at ease uh, in a performance, except for a few occasions, as I am in a courtroom. So this is what I was born to do. But there were some tricks that you pick up along the way. And uh, it's, it's led me to having a good run so far, knock on wood. You have, in the courtroom, destroyed more rats than the Great Hanoi Rat Massacre of 1902. Every mafia case that I've ever read about or watched in person, that's really the linchpin of all those cases. There's uh, very little in terms of uh, electronic surveillance. If there is electronic surveillance, it's usually what they call a voluntary recording by someone who's been cooperating with the government. They're the whole time. And so much of the case relies upon the testimony of these folks that have been committing crimes their whole life. And when it comes time to pay the piper after they've been arrested, their idea of paying the piper is to just kind of cooperate against everybody that they've ever known or committed crimes with. In your experience, are all cooperators lying? It certainly seems that way when you cross-examine them. Uh, I would say that they all lie about something. Some of them lie about virtually everything. But to be a really good cooperator, guys like Derso was very good. Uh, Mikey Scars, D. Leonardo was pretty good. And John Panisi, most recently, is, is very good. I would say Derso and Panisi are the two most skilled cooperators that I've had to deal with. They um, and if they're, you know, if they're trained properly by the feds, the handlers, you know, they what you try and do is you try and tell as much truth as you can. And then where you, you know, where you need to bolster the case of the prosecution, you fudge thing, fudge a few things here and there and stuff like that. But they try and. um, But they try and tell a little bit of truth or a lot of truth along with their testimony. The biggest thing that that hurts the government's case when they put on these prosecutors is the benefits that cooperators give them. I mean, the cooperators. Yeah. The benefits that they give them. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, 
Sammy Gravano got nine, five years for 19 murders. Joe Messina, who I had in the Romanello case, uh, he was, you know, he was the boss of a family, first boss ever to roll over. For example, he, uh, the government brought out on direct how he was made to forfeit something like $3 million. And the way that $3 million ended up in the Fed's hands was that his wife, I think Josephine, actually hand-delivered it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I spent, you know, 20 minutes uh, going over with the agents and, you know, how did the money arrive? Was it in a bag? Was it in a box? But the unbelievable thing about that is Dobasina made a lot of money selling heroin up with Georgie from Toronto and stuff like that. I guarantee that he had $100 million in his house. The feds never once executed a search warrant on his house. So, yes, he gave up $3 million, but I guarantee that he kept $97 million, if not more. And when the jury hears that, you know, you can't, you can't reward a guy who's a boss, who's responsible for murders and mayhem, you know, just because he joins your team and he testifies against Mr. Romanello, you can't let him keep $97 million. And a jury is disgusted by that. Same thing with Durso. They allowed him to take $200,000 in loan shark money off the street just before, you know, he, he uh, went into the program. And the juries, uh, they hate that. They, you know, it's not. And here I, the way I told the jury in the Romanello case, my guy drives an old Mercedes with a, with a fender hanging on by a thread. And these people over here have hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. What's wrong mm. with this? And if you get, you know, Brooklyn juries, everyday people, they don't want to see that kind of uh, uneven treatment. You can't let those guys off scot-free just because they're helping out Team America. And so that's, but I will, I will challenge you on one thing. Uh, the use of electronics, digital, is becoming bigger and bigger, and they're now relying less on cooperators. They have yeah, they these license plate readers and cameras everywhere. It's becoming uh, harder and harder to defend even a mafia case in view of the digital world that we live in. And I I, uh, I fear for what it's going to be like five or ten years from now. Interesting, interesting. Would uh, obviously a lot of people when they're arrested and they're faced with the prospect of a twenty-year prison sentence or essentially time served if they're willing to cooperate. And they look, and a lot of the people that they grew up with, they're already cooperating. A lot of the people they were committing crimes with, they're already cooperating. They have are left with the choice of uh, going to prison when all these people that they would ostensibly be being loyal to have already uh, been rats jumping off the ship before uh, before it sank. Um, would you, if you had a client that you had a relationship with a long time and they continued to pay you, would you ever represent someone that makes the decision to cooperate? No, but I do it more out of, uh, it's just not, it would not be helpful to my clientele in terms of uh, hiring me if they knew that I represented cooperators in other cases. So really, as a matter of professionalism, um, I've made the decision that I don't want to represent cooperators and I won't represent cooperators. 
So that's fine. If they want to, you know, if they think that's the best way to help themselves out, then the government will get them a free lawyer. They won't even have to pay for it. But uh, I just won't represent them. And so uh, it's just cleaner for me. And when uh, wise guys hire me, they know that they're hiring a guy who doesn't represent rats. Mm-hmm. That's just the way. I want to ask you about the uh, the trial of uh, Francis B.F. Guerra. He's been uh, described as a Colombo crime family associate, and about ten years ago, he was uh, he was acquitted of a double murder and uh, basically convicted of a relatively minor crime and was hit with a fourteen year prison sentence. A uh, couple of questions related to this case: one. Do you think that the government, not only in his case, but in general, has a habit of overcharging to in order to get a conviction on something? And two, do you think that juries feel the obligation to convict on something just because they kind of get the overall impression that this person is in the mob? Surely he's got to be guilty of something. We've got to convict on something. Uh, I think in many cases that can be uh, the way it went down. But in the Guerra, the Guerra case, Frank, was so exceptional. He was charged with, I think, three murders. And then the government brought in uh, 404B evidence of two additional murders. So I had to defend against five murders at this wow. trial. Uh, multiple extortions. Uh it was the the evidence was unbelievable, and a RICO, of course, it was a RICO thing. He was also charged with dealing oxycontin pills. Now, Frank had been in a motorcycle accident, serious injuries, and he had been prescribed these painkillers and stuff as part of the recovery, and he had become addicted to them. So the reality was that. So what was interesting was that he was charged with. Selling these pills as part of the RICO, it was a predicate act. But then the government, and it turned out that it saved them a little bit, they also charged as a standalone count selling these OxyContin pills. So we, I made a sort of tactical decision since the evidence they, they had regarding him selling the pills uh, was overwhelming enough to lose credibility with the jury. I, I walked this fine line and I told the jury that, listen, Frank Guerra, whatever he did with these OxyContin pills, I can tell you from this evidence, it had nothing to do with the racketeering. It had nothing to do with the Colombo family. Whatever he did on the side was just Frank being Frank, but it was not racketeering. And I'm thinking that I, I want if I could get the jury to convict him just of selling some pills on the side and beat everything else. I said, oh, my God, what a home run that would be. And that's exactly the way that it came down. And uh, the prosecutors, they were so uh, you should have seen their faces when the verdict came down. It was like incredible. So little did we know or I should have known that the federal judge who was God rest her soul one of the worst federal judges in the history of the bench. (laughs) I should have known uh, because she was horrible at trial. But anyway, so the government, they're left with a standalone selling his prescription pills count because somehow Congress has seen fit to make OxyContin pills, you know, like this is the latter day black plague. So if you sell these things, 
off prescription, then, you know, then you got to be sentenced to near death. So the government said, oh, my God, the guidelines are, I think, were 11 to 14, just on OxyContin pills. So, uh, so Argentieri, Nicole, uh, judge, 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 he got away with these murders. You got to sentence him to max 14 years. And she does. She gives him a top of the guideline sentence for selling the pills. Um, so if you ever want to think about a travesty of justice, a disgrace of monumental proportions, that was it. That was it. And, uh, you know, it got reduced to 11 years, but it was so unbelievably unfair to beat all of those charges, to beat the racketeering, even racketeering conspiracy, racketeering, substantive murders, extortion, drug dealing as racketeering. And then to get 14 years reduced to 11 for selling some of his prescription pills, you know, like for $250 and stuff like that. But that's sometimes the way it is. And if you have a really bad judge and a really vindictive prosecutor who was smarting from the bad press that she got after the verdict, you know, then sometimes that happens. And uh, so you were right in the intro when you said, when you win a case in federal court, you, you get down on your knees and you thank uh, whomever, because it's really, really hard to win in federal court. That issue, I mean, he was able to get acquitted on the uh, racketeering count. But one of the things that I've seen in many different trials and is it uh, over the last really 15 20 years is someone is barely convicted on count one Rico conspiracy that maybe they're outright acquitted on the other counts or, and they, uh, the jury doesn't find the other predicate acts beyond the two or three that they're, they're proven. They don't find the other racketeering acts proven. And the judge will then sentence the person that's been convicted of Rico as if they were convicted of the counts that they were acquitted on. I mean, this to me was a real eye opener for me. And the fact that it's been found as constitutional, that you can actually be sentenced based on conduct that you're acquitted of is pretty outrageous uh, to me. Uh, What's been your experience in terms of seeing defendants sentenced on acquitted conduct? Uh, Well, um, B.F. Guerra was clearly one of those. I did have an experience, and again, it comes down to the judge. I had another mafia trial in the Eastern District, uh, Anthony Antico. He was charged with a murder, uh, with Jew- and he was charged with running a gambling game and with trying to extort some money out of a lottery winner who won a ton of money. And... And so he was so he was charged with RICO, and those were three predicate acts, and there may have been another. So the jury acquits him of the murder, and they convicted him of the gambling game, which, which frankly, I had virtually no defense of. And the uh, trying to fleece some money out of the lottery winner, they went along with that. And... So he was convicted of RICO based on the, those two predicate acts, but not the murder. The judge was Carol Ammon, Eastern District, and the government was pounding the table, pounding the table, you know, sentenced him for the murder because uh, even though he got acquitted, you can do it. And, and Judge Ammon, to her credit, and she was she's really quite a good judge, 
she gave him like a three or a four year sentence because he had previous RICO convictions. He did run a gambling game and stuff like that. And she said, I'm not going to sentence him as if he was convicted of the murder. The jury said he was acquitted of the murder. And so I'm not, he's not getting any time for that from me. So sometimes you get, you get a, a mm. judge with a strong sense of fairness and they will do the right thing. And that was, I'm telling you, it was such a heartwarming moment for her to do that sentencing. And it was, uh, so I was so pleased with that. What a great judge. That's, that's so sometimes wonderful. you get it, they, they get it right. As in the Guerra case, she didn't care that he got acquitted of all the other crimes. She was going to bang him out for that anyway. Obviously, when you're a criminal defense attorney, you're going to be representing a great many criminals, a great many people that have done a lot of bad things, stolen from people, ripped people off, hurt people, maybe even killed people. And the logical consequence of you doing your job well may result in that person being um, free. And instead of being in prison, someone that uh, has committed a lot of a lot of heinous acts throughout their life, they're out on the street. I'm sure you get this question all the time, and I get it just about uh, defending the constitutional rights of uh, some pretty nefarious people on the radio. Do you ever have any ethical issues with what you do? Do you ever wrestle with your own conscience knowing that if you do your job well, somebody that's a bad guy could end up out on the street? Don't wrestle with it for one second. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a psychopath. What can I tell you? <laughs> but no, I, you know what? I do my job. I do my job and I get in there and the government with all their resources, they, they're supposed to do their job. And if I do a better job and I walk the guy out, so be it. I really never look back and I don't. Uh, and I look at it this way. And think about this. If it's a member of your family uh, gets arrested for a crime, no matter whether they're innocent or they're guilty, you want somebody to, to go as hard as you can to represent them for the best outcome. Now, in, in most, uh, you know, most cases end up in a plea. And sometimes the only time we end up in a trial is when the government figures they have so strong a case, we're just not going to offer a plea. Um, that's what happened with uh, Mr. Polito, Carm Carmine Pizza Polito. The government thought they had such a strong case that uh, so that they weren't going to offer him a plea. And this was when he was transferred over to state court. And. You know, so we ended up trying the case and the jury said hey, he's not guilty and he walks out the door. So in my view, it's not on me. That's on the prosecutor. And I do the best that I can. And I will tell you one thing. When I was when I started out in private practice, I did 18B cases, you know, in, uh, in state court. And I had this uh, I had this I got oh, no, this was actually a retained case now that I think about it. I got the case of this guy from Harlem. His name was Big John Simmons. And he was a bit of a drunk, or I guess a big drunk. And he ended up murdering somebody in his wooming house in Harlem. And uh, so we, we ended up going to trial. There was no offer, the, you know, 15 to life, 25 to life. <clears throat> and I ended up winning the case. And I won it because I was able to show or the government, the prosecution failed to show that the stab wound that he inflicted was the cause of death. 
As it turns out, the victim was brought to Harlem Hospital. The treating physician completely botched it. Uh, you know, botched it. So he ended up with a splenectomy because the treating physician botched the treatment. So I was able to raise the defense that my guy's stab wound didn't cause his death. He would have lived if they didn't screw it up in Harlem Hospital. Hmm. So that was, uh, so I walked out with that. That was maybe one of my first murder acquittals. Fast forward maybe five, ten years, and I'm in court. And I'm looking over the uh, the calendar to sign up my case up at the, uh, the, bar, the bar. And I see the name John Simmons. And I look and I look at the charge and it's one twenty five twenty five. Five ten years later, the guy is back with another murder charge. And so that gave me some pause when I when I saw that. And that's probably the only time when I ever when I ever had that kind of reflection of getting somebody out. But Big John Simmons was a mean drunk and he did bad things when he was drunk. But uh, so that was that was quite a quite a shock for me to see that name. Yeah. And believe me, I've asked the same question to prosecutors who've uh, cut sweetheart deals with cooperators and those cooperators have gone out and committed other crimes. So I, I appreciate your candor and the candor in which you handled that question. Let me ask you about the RICO statute. And then uh, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I promise I'll let you go. The um, RICO statute has been around for about 50 years. It's been used in the way that it's been used in mafia cases for about 40 years. The guy that was sort of the the guru of creative if that's what you want to call it uses of the rico statute was uh, was rudy giuliani it's really a fascinating thing to watch a federal rico prosecution because rather than innocent until proven guilty you have a situation where they can freeze your money before you're convicted of anything they have a situation you have a situation where they can make federal crimes out of state crimes they can try you again even if you've already been acquitted in state court of a certain crime, they get a second bite of the apple if they bring it into a RICO case. Do you believe, having done more RICO cases than almost anybody I've spoken to, do you believe that the RICO statute is constitutional? No, absolutely not. Um, it is a very creative tool, and I hope that Rudy gets hoisted on his own petard. I can't think of a guy more richly deserving of a little time in a Georgia jail than Mr. Rudy Giuliani. He was a bully when he was a Southern District prosecutor. He was a bully running around for Donald Trump. So he's been a bully his whole life, and, and he loved the RICO statute. He just loved it. And so it's a huge tool for prosecutors. It's very hard to... You know, the statute of limitations is almost non-existent. Acquitted conduct, no problem. I mean, you know, uh, it's so it's so favorable for the uh, for the government that it's just one tool that uh, that it's hard to deal with. I don't know. The constitutionality seems to be well settled. I don't know if that ever is going to change. But one thing that might change is the ability of the government acquitted conduct. There are uh, two or three new judges, conservative judges on the Supreme Court, who don't like the idea 
of being punished for acquitted conduct. So I am hopeful that within the next few years, that tool will no longer be in the government's arsenal. Well, that would certainly be a positive. Since you mentioned Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump, one of my hopes is, as much of a sham as I think this Georgia prosecution is, as far as a RICO case goes, one of my hopes is that the 40% of the country or so that really loves Donald Trump, that this will open their eyes to an aspect of the criminal justice system that they haven't paid much attention to up until this point. Usually it's difficult to engender a lot of sympathy for people People that get charged under the RICO statute because they tend to be gangsters. If you have a former president and a former beloved mayor, irrespective of your thoughts about him, that it's now being charged under the same statute, my hope is that this will cause a lot of people to say, wait a minute, this is improper. Do you think uh, I have any reason to be optimistic about that, Joe? No, absolutely not, because those 40 percent would love Donald Trump. And I don't know that they delve into the uh, intricacies of, wow, look at this RICO statute being used. They just love him. And, I, you know, there's no dealing with them. No matter what he did or does, they don't care. They, you know, he thumbs his nose at them, the libs, et cetera, et cetera. So they don't care what he did. So it's, uh, to me, it's, I, I don't think anything would change their minds. The unfairness of, and I don't think it's unfair. Listen, if we're going to have Rico, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So if we're going to have it, you know, let's have it. It shouldn't have been even with the mafia, but, you know, but there it is. So I don't think anything is going to change their mind. And we're just going to have to plot along as is. You mentioned Joe Messino, the boss of the Bonanno crime family, a little bit earlier. He was one of the first bosses, I think the first full-fledged official boss ever to flip and become a cooperator. You cross-examined him. He just passed away uh, recently. What were your impressions of Joe Messino? What, What can you tell us about Joe Messino? What's his legacy to the mafia, to the criminal justice system? You know, it's funny. Uh, his his legacy is will always be uh, the first boss that ever flipped and became greater. He was a uh, he was really well liked. You know, I represent people in different families, and universally there was uh, just complete shock that he had rolled over because he was he was really really well liked uh, by everybody. Even my client, Mister Romanello, knew him very well, and. Uh, and he told me that he that he didn't think that Joe Messina would go out of his way to hurt him because they were so friendly for so many years. And to tell you the truth, I think that that was the case at trial. You know, sometimes you get, I remember Durso and Panisi and Scars, they, they would, you know, you would ask them uh, what color is the sky? And they would say, oh, I remember your client selling uh, Oxycontin pills and it was, the sky was blue. I mean, that, that's how they'd answer a question. Joe Messina was very straightforward at the trial. Um, so I, I had grudging respect for him in terms of uh, Ron was right. He didn't, he didn't go out of his way to kill him. And uh, so that's my lasting, uh, my lasting, you know, and he made the, he made a business decision. Oh, you know, what really turned it for Joe Messina more than anything else. It wasn't so much what they were going to do to him. 
It's that they were going to take his wife's house and income mm-hmm. and everything. They were going to leave her destitute. And that was, I believe, if I can psychoanalyze the gentleman, I believe that was the tipping point in terms of the feds getting him to roll over. He wasn't going to leave his wife, uh, you know, out there penniless and him without the ability to help her out because he was in jail. So, I, you know, I, I, I give credit to somebody that's been married for 44 years. Uh, I respect people that take care of their family. And so so he did that. And I gave him props for that. As far as you can tell, what's the mafia like today? I There's a question I get asked a lot. And uh, it certainly seems a long way away from uh, the heydays of the Prohibition era, but also a long way away from uh, the days of the uh, Colombo crime family wars where these gangland murders were frequent tabloid fodder, something you rarely hear about these days. What's going on in terms of La Cosa Nostra today? What's going on is that the uh, the quality of the gangsters has gone down so much that you can scarcely call them gangsters. There are so few stand-up people, so few, uh, that you just can't trust anybody in the life anymore. And I think the old-timers recognize that, that it's just not the same. The crimes that they get involved in, I mean... Vinny Asaro ends up doing time in jail for a road rage incident and a car accident. Um, you know, they, they do robberies. They're involved in drugs and uh, drug-related robberies. So they're low-rent people. Uh, whatever sense of uh, honor there was in the organizations back in the day, that's gone. There's no stand-up people anymore. So I, I do think it, they're, they're more just a bunch of criminals who happen to be Italian. And uh, that's it. There is the, the mafia as the, 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 the lore and the allure of the Godfather and Godfather 2. That's gone. That's long gone. And I don't think that'll ever come back. If you had to, I end the, every interview asking this question. If you had to pick, of all the films that you've seen, which depicts the most realistic aspect of mafia life what's the most realistic mob movie well to me one and two godfather one and two are basically one movie they are so good and so realistic that it's but and they're and they're art they're just it's so spectacular and you know it's no wonder that i love doing mafia cases i mean i, I sit there i watch them 10 times each and it's just it's such a fascinating story the characters, the uh, the weakness and the strength of some of them and whatever, and the betrayal. Um, Godfather 1 and 2 are, oh my God, they're just, you know, it's funny. I remember, uh, I think Godfather 1 came out in 1973. I was dating a Sicilian girl at the time. I was in Milwaukee where I'd gone to college. And I, we went to see Godfather when it came out at three o'clock in the afternoon in the movie theater on a sunny Milwaukee day. And I came out of that theater and I was staggered. I, I still remember that moment to this day. And what a spectacular movie. And I still think the two of them are just, just uh, so good that, uh, you know, I, I'll watch them another 10 times. Those are the best. <laughs> 
You and me both, but uh, one always wonders how much realism is there. Gerald McMahon, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. I appreciate it. And uh, if I ever find myself on the uh, receiving end of an indictment, you'll be among my first phone calls. I hope you'll be generous with your retainer request. (laughs) We always give a little bit of a discount for the fourth estate. Frank. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Gerald. If you want to learn more about Gerald McMahon or retain him for your own criminal needs, you can check out his website at uh, GeraldJMcMahon.com. It's Gerald with a G. GeraldJMcMahon.com. Hey, I appreciate you listening. If uh, somebody sent you this podcast, please do us a favor and subscribe. You can search the Racket Report on any podcast app and be sure to uh, forward it to your friends so that uh, they can be a bit better informed about some that there's a lot of misinformation about. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.